Why don't you pray with me before we jump into this passage this morning? Jesus, we thank you so much for your presence here with us this morning, and we thank you that you do indeed make things well in our lives. Uh, regardless of what we've shown up here this morning with, uh, whatever sort of week we've come from, we thank you that you are alive and well, and you care about the details in our lives. Lord, we pray that you would open our hearts to your word this morning, uh, to receive and not just to learn, but also to be transformed by your Holy Spirit. We ask in your name. Amen. Amen. It is, uh, like I said, it's great to be back, and there we just have a full house. I was standing with my dad, and we were both like, there's people who just don't know. we got to figure them out and find out who these people are. So bless you for being here, and if you are visiting uh, or if you're new today, we especially just want to welcome you. Uh, we're just so glad you're here. And yes, a very happy Thanksgiving. My Thanksgiving meal is tomorrow, so I feel I'm not quite in Thanksgiving mode, but I know many of you are. So happy Thanksgiving. Bless you. We are heading into, like I said, the book of Malachi. A little bit of background before we jump right into this passage, because I know the passage, especially with the love and the hate words, we'll, we'll dive into a little bit to try and, and suss out what that's about. A little bit of background. Malachi is the last uh, Old Testament book in our Bibles, so it's the final prophetic book in, in the ordering of our Bibles anyway, of Israel's scriptures. And it's pointing, uh, it's a fitting book to look at because it preps us for the arrival of Jesus. And by the time we get through Malachi, we'll be heading, we'll be sometime in late November. And so our hearts and our imaginations will be kind of primed for Christmas. And so Malachi is, is a good sort of lead-in to the season of Advent. It's written about 100 years after the exiles returned from Babylon. And so you, had a, you have a, a period in Israel's history where um, they had ignored God and turned from God and, and gone their own way and, and done all kinds of evil and injustice. And God said, finally, I'm going to let another nation come and take you in exile out of your land. And through that experience, I hope that you will return to me, come back to me. And you realize uh, the depth of your own sin and also the depth of my love for you and give this land its Sabbaths, give this land a break from your evil and from your sin. And so they're taken away into Babylon. And this is now uh, about 100 years after their return from Babylon. So there's a long period where they're in exile. They finally get to come back home. And there's excitement. And they build a wall. And they, they're building their temple. And everyone's like, yeah, this is really, really good. Here we go. And, you know, we're waiting for a Messiah to show up and to set up God's kingdom. And we're all very pumped and excited. And it turns out, the people are just as terrible as they were before the exile. And all of their hopes don't really come to pass, and they start to get snarky and prideful and sinful again. And it turns out that uh, the, the hope of the exile, that this would transform their hearts, uh, eventually didn't really pan out uh, the way that they had hoped it would. And so they're back in the land. Things are not going well. And Malachi essentially makes the point, the exile didn't change things. There's still a deeper brokenness in the hearts of humanity that will need to be fixed by someone else. The exile alone and our own moral effort won't transform us. We need someone else to come and save us. And that is so true in all of our lives. We can try as hard as we can to be a good person to try to live up to our own expectations, to try to live up to the expectations of other people, 
and the pressures that are sometimes put on us to, to live or behave a certain way. And in the end, ultimately, we will fail in that effort. We cannot save ourselves. We can't be morally good enough to somehow cross the threshold between being sinful and broken and in need of a Savior to somehow being righteous on my own. We just can't do it. And Israel itself couldn't do it. Israel, who'd walked with God and seen the miracles and had his word, they couldn't fulfill the promises and the law that was required of them. And so we have here a stark reminder that God needs to intervene in this story. That yes, he's working through Israel, but they can't save themselves. And so here God is confronting now the now this next generation who are also full of injustice and their own idolatries, and uh, he's calling them to account because he is going to show up. And later in Malachi, we'll get some striking passages about what happens when Yahweh comes back. Are you going to be ready for him? And it leads right into what we read in the New Testament. So that's a little bit about what's going on in Malachi. It's written as a series of disputes. You have six disputes between God and the people. So the people make a claim, and God responds to that claim. And that happens six times throughout the book. And so today we're going to look at the first of the six disputes. This is the first five verses. And God says in verse 2, I've loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? And then to explain how he loves them, God starts to describe this really important biblical concept, and the concept is called covenant. It's this idea of almost like a marriage. It's, a, it's a, an agreement to a certain kind of relationship together. When I do pre-marriage counseling, I like to tell the couple, um, when we make our vows, when you make the vows to each other, we're not making vows to me, I often have to tell them this in the rehearsal, stop looking at me and look at just... Look at your spouse. You're not making the vow to Nick. You're making the vow to her. Um, when you make those vows, that's a really serious moment because what, you're, what you say, the words you speak actually do something. It actually changes something in reality. And it's more than just a, like a trite promise. You're actually entering into a covenant relationship. So we can use like legal contractual language, but that kind of loses the warmth that's meant to be there when we talk about covenant, especially in a marriage but also between God and his people, that there's a depth of, of love and compassion that's built into this idea of covenant relationship. But there is also um, an element of just respect and authority that Israel's entered into this, this, this relationship with Yahweh, that they're going to follow and be obedient to him, something like a marriage, but we just don't really quite have the same, the same sort of language and culture that they do back then. And so God... To explain how have I loved you, he says, well, I'm going to tell you and remind you about the covenant I made with you. And so he says, is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord, yet I have loved Jacob. I choose Jacob, who becomes Israel. I chose Israel and that family to carry my covenantal promises. I, I chose a family to reveal myself and to reveal my glory and to be a different sort of nation from the nations around it. I didn't choose Esau. I didn't choose the country of Edom, which Esau grew into. I chose Israel. And that context, then, with that in mind, helps us 
to think about the love and hate passages because the love and hate passages are a bit intense, hey? They're a bit, they're a bit strong. God's coming across pretty strong here. Uh, Jesus is like that too, right? There's points in the Gospels where Jesus says stuff and people are like, that's a bit intense, we're done. And so if you thought God was just sort of nice and fluffy, um, you're reading the wrong Bible. He's, you know, he's pretty intense. Here he says, I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. And you think, well, that's not very good. Kind of like when my Bible said that God didn't hate anybody. And that seemed easier to swallow. So what's he talking about here? Well, there's a sense this is not emotional language about one's warm feelings towards someone or lack thereof. Again, this is the formal covenantal language of who we've chosen to enter into relationship with or not. So it would be similar in some sense to say, I loved Sarah, but I hated these other women. I don't hate them in like an active, vengeful sense. But in the sense of choosing for covenant I have, I have chosen to reject them and to choose this one. Does that make sense? And so that's what God's saying here. I chose Jacob, and I rejected Esau. I didn't pick him for the covenant. I picked you. Even though you were unfaithful to me most of the time, I picked you, which says a lot. So think of love and hate as choose and reject in some sense. And we see that kind of usage in other places as well. In fact, the marriage illustration is probably the best one because we see it in the book of Hosea. Hosea is called to be faithful to his wife even though she cheats on him. And listen to Hosea 3, verse 1. And the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods. This sense that God is after Israel, he's chosen them, he loves them like a faithful spouse. He's after them, and he's rejected the same sort of relationship with others. And so God loves Israel, even though they haven't been faithful to him, he's still faithful to the vow that he made. And so that love and hate description is describing a willingness to be faithful to the agreement of the covenant. Choosing each day, as I like to tell pre-marriage couples, choosing each day to say, I do, not just on your wedding day to say, I do. It doesn't mean God loves you or hates you based on your ethnicity, Okay. So you can't just take that passage and go, well, this means God hates certain people groups. It's like, well, that's not what it's about. You can read that into it, but that's not what's happening in that text, right? It's referring specifically to this question that Israel posed. God, how have you shown your love to us, your covenant faithfulness to us? And God says, well, I showed it when I picked Jacob and have faithfully been with you all these generations, even though you slept around. Right? That's basically what he says. I didn't choose Esau for this. I choose you, Israel. And that calling to be faithful uh, and to, to live out my character in the nations and to point people to God is ultimately going to be expressed when Jesus shows up and he becomes the blessing to the nations. But in the meantime, I've been faithful to you even though you're not faithful to me. And now before you start thinking like, oh, poor Edom, poor innocent Edom, Edom is... It's terrible, like super violent, taking people out. Like they're not the innocent party in this exchange, okay? So before you start going like, wow, the God's showing like strange favoritism towards this group. No, no, no. 
Edom is quite worthy of, of what it gets. Actually, in Numbers 20, Israel's on their way from Egypt to the Promised Land, going through the wilderness with all their, you know, all their <laughs> crazy amounts of flocks coming with them. And uh, off they go, and they need to pass through Edom. And Moses sends an envoy, and it's like, hey, can we go through Edom? Because um, we need to get over there, and, like, this is your land. And we don't want to just, like, trample through it without asking for permission. And, and like, if we drink some of your water or, like, we have all these cattle and they're going to eat your grass. And so we'll, like, repay some of that. Like, we'll, you know, can we make some sort of, like, business arrangement here? And Edom's like, no, if you cross this land, we're just going to come kill you. And then for the rest of their history, Edom's like, and now we're coming to fight you violently. And so when, uh, yeah, when God has his judgment against Edom, it's, it's not just, you know, because they've got the wrong color of skin or some dumb thing like that. This is not a racism, racism issue. This is not a racist issue or an ethnic issue. It's about God dealing justly with the peoples of the world. In fact, Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Amos and Obadiah all talk about God's God's righteous justice against Edom for their violence and for their hatred. So that's the backstory of what's going on in Malachi 1. So Israel's saying, God, you haven't loved us. You haven't been faithful. You sent us on exile, and now we're back. And look, it's not very good. We thought it'd be good. And so because we think you're no good, we're going to start doing idolatry and treating our poor really terribly and doing all of this. You haven't been faithful, and God basically says, um, excuse me, I have most definitely been faithful while you've been doing all this other stuff. I chose you, and you're the ones that are breaking the covenant that we set up back at Mount Sinai. And you say I haven't been loving you, but I most definitely have. And so the, really the big theme of this text is, is to realize that God deeply loves his people way more than they even realize or imagine. God has been so incredibly faithful to his covenantal promises. In fact, he'll say later in the book, return to me. Return to me. I want to return to you. Come back to me. Come back to me. And so there's three things, just quickly, that I think God encourages Israel in regarding his faithfulness. And they all relate to something in our life today as well. So three ways God encourages Israel to see his faithful, faithfulness. The first one we've already talked about in verse 2, where he says, yet I've loved Jacob. He's basically saying, remember the covenant? Like, remember our past together? This would almost be like a, an estranged husband and wife. And one of them says, remember the good times we had together? Like, that was real. And, and somehow we've lost that. That's a, some sense of what's being said here. Remember the covenant. I've been faithful. I chose you. I chose you. And then look at verse 5. He says, your own eyes shall see this, talking about his love for Jacob, but also his hatred or the destruction of Edom for their own sins. There's this sense of God calling them to say, look at my present faithfulness. I'm at work in the world. And, and there's testimony. You can say God's been present in our lives. Or we can ignore his presence in our lives. But here he's calling them to say, your own eyes have seen this. This isn't just... This covenant stuff isn't just ancient history. This is happening right now for us. That's what God's saying. You should be able to see this happening in your lives today. And then look again at verse 5. And this is the third thing I wanted to point out. Is that it ends with this proclamation of worship where the people, as they realize God is faithful, say, great is the Lord beyond the borders of Israel. And you have to think again that 
in the ancient Near East, there's this sense sometimes that the deity, the god you serve, is just sort of a local geographic god, like he operates in this little area, right? He's got this chunk, and like this god over here has got that chunk. So when you say, great is the Lord beyond the borders of Israel, it's actually fairly significant. We're saying, Yahweh is not just some geographical god. No, he's the god of the whole world, and he loves us, and he's faithful to us. He's the Lord of all creation. So what are some of the implications for us? Well, I think the first thing that really applies to us today is to think God was just as faithful to his covenant with Israel, even though they totally were a, a mess in, in their, on their end of things. God was still so faithful to them. He is still so faithful to us. And he's still so faithful to you, even when you feel like you've really messed up. When you feel like, I don't deserve God's love. I've made a mess of my life. I've cheated on him. I've slept around with other idols, other things that have taken up first and foremost place in my life. I've worshipped my work. I've worshipped the money and the status and the influence I've made in my life. I've worshipped my own ambitions and plans for the future. Why would God still love me? Because he's that good. Because he's that faithful. And even in the moments where we might say, God, it doesn't feel like you're loving me because you let this happen or you let that happen or this thing didn't plan out the way I thought it would, which is kind of where they're at, right? They come back after this exile and things are not jiving the way they wished that it would be. And so they start blaming God. It's easy in our lives when things aren't going the way we kind of wish they were, that we just kind of blame someone else for it, right? Often it's the result of our own decisions. Not always, but often it is. And yet God is still faithful to you and me in the middle of all of that heartache and brokenness and struggle. He's still faithful. And he's faithful not just to his old covenant, but he's faithful to his new covenant, which is the new covenant that was made when Jesus went to the cross for your sin and mine. When Jesus went to the cross and took your sin and death upon himself, he took the punishment that you and I deserve for all of the evil and sin that we've brought into this world. And he's faithful to the promise that, that God has now made an agreement with all of humanity to say, when you trust in my son, when you come to faith in Jesus, your sins are forgiven. And communion with God is fully restored. You can come back and your sins are washed away. You're clean. You're made new. And though we, like Israel, may go astray, we're told that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. And so because God was faithful to ancient Israel, we can say today he is still faithful to his covenant. And that includes his faithfulness even to me. And even when I feel like a complete loser, he's still faithful to me. And I can rest in that promise and that hope. And that means you can have assurance of your salvation, that you really are forgiven, 
and you really are cleansed, and you really are made alive by a spirit. Even if you don't always feel that way, even if emotionally you don't feel that way, God is faithful to his covenantal promises to see that through in your life. So even when you may feel that things are not well, or you feel I'm still a failure, or you feel I've messed up again, God is still faithful. And so he's faithful to us individually because of the promise of Jesus and what Jesus did at the cross. But God is also faithful to us as a body. He's faithful to us as his church. And not just his church kind of worldwide and centuries deep, but his church locally. Like God is faithful to Triangle Gospel Church. Like to us in this room. He's faithful to us. And so we can trust that he will continue to guide us and keep us and love us even as we go through our own growing pains or go through our own struggles or go through our own shifts, whatever that might be, or ministries come or go. God is still faithful to us even when we fail in our own trying to follow him. He still loves us and he still keeps us. That's the second point. So he's faithful to us individually. He's faithful to us as a church. And the third thing I want to say is, again, going back to this great is God in all the world statement beyond the borders of Israel in verse 5. God is faithful to his promise to renew and to restore and to redeem his broken world. And that means when I watch the news about Russia and Ukraine, or I see stuff that's being taught in public schools that really irks my soul, or I see brokenness in Hollywood or in our secular culture, I can still rest in the assurance that God's on the throne and he will see things right in the end. And it's easy to get kind of lost in the cultural and political warfare stuff that goes on, right? It's easy to kind of feel like that's just so big and beyond me. But great is the Lord beyond the borders of what I know. He's alive and at work beyond what I can see in ways I don't yet understand. But he's still God, and he's still faithful. So where in your life do you need to trust in God's faithfulness? Maybe are you struggling individually with the assurance that God loves you? Then hear today that God is faithful, and he does love you. Are you struggling maybe with, with someone in church or with something in the community at large? Know today God is faithful to hold us and keep us and carry us through. Or maybe you're struggling with an anxiety or a worry about the future, and you see stuff on the news or on the internet, and you just think, God, where are you in this? I don't, I don't, I don't know what tomorrow's going to bring, and it just seems like a mess. Can you rest in the assurance that God is still faithful beyond the borders of what we know, and that he's alive and well, and we can trust in him? that he will see things through, even if it's not in the timing we suggest or wish, we, wish was happening. So remember that God is indeed faithful to us, to his church, to his world. So let's commit today to follow him and to be obedient to him, because that's the implication for Israel, right? As God says, I have been faithful, so turn back to me. Let's get in on this together and continue the life that, you've call, that I've called you to, right? So that's the call for us as well. Let's commit today afresh to following him and to obeying him and to resting in his covenantal faithfulness. Amen? Okay, let's pray. 
Jesus, I want to thank you again for your word. And uh, I pray, Lord, that you would remind us. You've reminded us this morning, but I pray that you would continue to remind us through this week of just how faithful and loving you really are. And for some, that might mean, Lord, just a realization again of our own sinfulness and our own brokenness. And that can be hard to come to grips with. But, Lord, I pray that when we feel the weight of our sin and of our guilt and our shame, with that would come the, the freedom and the grace of your spirit to remember that we've been washed clean and forgiven by the blood of the Lamb. And you are faithful to that covenant promise. Lord, I want to thank you that you promised that whoever believes in you shall be saved. And Jesus, today I thank you for that faithfulness that regardless of, of how bad our past has been, you still reach out to us. Here's Israel in an ongoing relationship of ups and downs and brokenness. And that is so true of a lot of us in our individual lives. So Jesus, I pray today that you would remind each one who's here, who's listening, or maybe hearing this online or on podcasts later. Just hear today that Jesus is faithful. He does love you. And he calls you to embrace him and to return to him today. Lord, I thank you that you're walking with us, not just individually, but you're walking with us as a church. And you're walking uh, with us as we navigate issues in our world. And Lord, so often we don't understand what's going on. We do trust in your word, which is solid and true, that you will bring about your redemptive purposes in your time, and you call us to walk with you uh, as we see that through. So, Lord, I just pray for, for the various things going on in our world. We lift up our leaders today, Lord, and, and we pray your kingdom come, your will be done in our city as elections are coming up, and in Ontario, and in Canada, and around the world, Lord, would you move in the hearts and lives of those you've put in positions of authority and leadership and call them to yourself. And Lord, we pray that we would be faithful in following you, and loving you, and obeying you, as you have us walk through this world in this time and in this place. In our workplaces and in our schools, places you've planted us, in our own marriages and in our own family dynamics, Lord, would you help us to be faithful and to rest in the assurance of your love and your grace. And with the words you taught us, we pray together, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Why don't you stand with me? Love to send you off with the benediction. Again, reminder, this Saturday is our food drive. We'd love to have you there. There'll be lots of ways to volunteer, so do uh, let us know. You can talk to Pastor Brian about that as he's heading that up. And uh, if you have uh, time to join any of our discipleship groups or small groups, we'd love to have you there. Uh, yeah.
appreciate you coming out today on a very happy Thanksgiving. So children of God who are loved and forgiven through our Lord Jesus Christ, may you know and remember the faithfulness of God towards you. May you rest in the assurance of what Christ did on the cross for you. And may you find hope for the future, knowing that God is at work beyond the borders of what you know. And you can rest in the assurance of his goodness and his grace. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Amen. I do love you guys. Have a great week and a very happy Thanksgiving. And we'll see you on Sunday. Bless you.